I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast approximately 15 years ago. Over the years, I've been privileged to speak with a number of Holocaust survivors, and each and every opportunity to do so has been a powerful experience for me and I think for our listeners. But of all those conversations, the one that left the deepest and most lasting impression on me was this conversation with Edith Eisenberg, who made her home with her husband and children in Racine for a number of years. She was a registered nurse and for a time director of student health services at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, a beloved member of the community. Edith Eisenberg died in 2012. I will always be grateful to her for making time in her busy schedule to come to the studios of WGTD and to tell the story of what she and her parents experienced as they fled Germany in 1939. We broadcast a portion of this conversation on today's morning show. Here is that interview in its entirety. I know that many WGTD listeners will recognize the name of Dorothy Constantine, who joined me on the morning show around Mother's Day to tell a wonderful story about uh, going to the Metropolitan Opera for the first time in, in memory of her mother, who helped nurture her love of opera. Uh, recently, I spoke to Dorothy and heard from her that she had a dear friend with an important story that she hoped could be shared here on the morning show. And once I heard of uh, the story, I most enthusiastically agreed. So I'm very, very grateful that Dorothy Constantine has brought to the um, uh, WGTD studios today her dear friend, Edith Eisenberg, who uh, may be a familiar name to some of you, uh, or her husband, who was a chemist who actually taught at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Uh, he has uh, recently passed away. Edith Eisenberg uh, we would call a Holocaust survivor. She was born uh, in Germany, and she and her parents managed to escape just as uh, the horror of the Holocaust was beginning to really engulf her homeland. And uh, she has lived here in the United States ever since and um, is sharing her story of what it was like to grow up in Germany in the 1930s and... Uh, especially what it looked like for her as a child, born in 1930, so leaving her homeland at the age of nine. And we'll find out a bit about what the experience was like to come to this far-off nation called America and what it was like for she and her parents to, uh, to build a new life for themselves here. So uh, this is a, a story of, uh, of escaping horror and of finding uh, new life uh, in, in, in America. And so I'm really grateful that Edith Eisenberg has uh, agreed to come on the morning show to share her story. And uh, Edith Eisenberg, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. Ahead of our talking about your story, I'd like to hear a little bit about how over the years you have told your story. You mentioned before uh, we began that this is also actually something that, that you and your husband would do uh, on a number of occasions, that is, share your story of, of escaping the Holocaust. Talk for a moment about how much you've done this over the years and, and what this experience has been like, that is, the experience of telling your story to others. I started, um, at first it was very hard for me. I, 
I was too emotional about what had happened, and I was not ready to share it as early as my husband was. But after a while, when we got invitations to talk to schools, and we especially liked to talk to children because we felt that we wanted the, for them to hear the story firsthand, it became easier. Hmm. And uh, now I'm 78 years old, and um, I'm very fearful that the story of the Holocaust is going to be lost. Be not only are the Holocaust survivors dying, but the liberators of the camps who saw firsthand what happened are also dying. Hmm. I remember at uh, Kenosha's most recent Holocaust Remembrance Day, their guest was a gentleman by the name of Nate Toffel, and he would be very similar to you in age. And uh, I remember him mentioning in the course of our interview that this was something that he, over the years, talked very infrequently about, but that it has been important for him uh, in recent years, as older Holocaust survivors pass away, for, for him and, and for his peers to, in a sense, pick up the mantle of responsibility to share this story. And it sounds like you feel some of that responsibility as well. I, I feel the same way. Um, I always depended upon my father, who was a writer, to tell the story. And he wrote a book and did tell the story. But then when, like, I think now the mantle has passed to me. Mm. And I think um, I feel a real sense that this is something I want to do. You mentioned in passing that uh, you and your husband actually, in addition to sharing your story with school groups and, and, and various civic groups, also shared your story as part of uh, Steven Spielberg's Shoah project. Tell us when you did that and, and what that experience was like. I can't, I can't tell you exactly how many years ago that was. I would say around 15 years ago hmm. when Steven Spielberg conceived the idea of um, collecting the stories of Holocaust survivors all over the world, actually. And um, mm -hmm. we decided that um, when we did this, we, would, we wanted to have more information, and we actually collected and organized some of our family history and our own history. Now, today I just came in without doing anything. Mm. I'm just going to talk to you from what I remember. Sure. But it was um, the interviewers were, an interviewer came from Chicago and she made the um, interviewers each. She came twice. She came one day, the day before, and explained everything and told us the kind of material that she thinks would be helpful. And because it's a video, she also asked whether we had anything that we would like to show. Hmm. And I collected pictures of my family, pictures of family who had died in um, concentration camps, and other memorabilia that I had saved, like a German passport with a large J in it, meaning for standing for Judah. Hmm. Because at that time when I was a child, all the papers... Everything had to have a J if you were Jewish. Hmm. And I had other papers like that, too. Hmm. And so did my husband. 
So now, because you and your husband recorded those stories as part of the Shoah project, these are stories that can be seen and, and heard by people who choose to access them. Exactly, exactly. Mm. We're speaking today with Edith Eisenberg, and uh, she makes her home now in Racine. We're going to be hearing her, her story of being born and, and raised for a time in Germany, and then the story of she and her parents uh, escaping with their lives to uh, make a new life for themselves here in America. Uh, you were born in 1930 in Stuttgart, Germany. Tell us what your earliest memories are of Stuttgart. I assume the earliest memories are probably largely happy ones. Uh, I, I agree with, yes, definitely happy ones. Um, I, my father and mother and my maternal grandparents uh, lived in Stuttgart where my father and my grandfather owned a Jewish newspaper and they were my parents and grandparents were very much involved in the community and my grandfather was also a theater critic but I couldn't go anymore because as Jews we weren't admitted anymore hmm. but I had a my life and I think when I was trying to think back when I first as a child realized that something was wrong. I, did, I don't think at that time I already, I knew the name Nazis yet. Mm. I, um, but I knew that my life was changing. And I think probably one of the first things that really brought it home to me is that when all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, when I would meet Margaret, she wouldn't even talk to me. She just absolutely walked away. As mm. if she, as just like she didn't know me, mm. and I was very hurt by it. And I asked my mother about it, and my mother said, my mother then told me a little bit about what was going on, and said she's sure that it's not anything between Margaret and me, but it's the circumstances. And um, one day, my mother and I were walking, and Margaret's mother came up to us, and I remember it because it was. It was really eerie. You could tell she was afraid. And she just whispered into my mother's ear. She's, and my mother told me afterwards. She said, I just want you to know that if it were up to me, um, Margaret and Edith could keep on playing, she said. But Hans, and, and that was their son, he said, she said, Hans joined the Hitler Youth, and he's going to report us if uh -huh. Margaret plays with a Jewish friends. Oh. So that, that was one of the first times that I learned really firsthand what was going on, because I think my parents, like so many of the other parents, try to protect us. Sure. I was going to say that, that that had, I mean, on top of the, of course, the, the, the central difficulty, which was of the, the, the real life situation confronting uh, the Jews in Germany, also the sort of smaller crisis which confronted parents all across Germany about what do I tell little Margaret or wh whoever the child is who's asking why can't I play with my best friend anymore? I mean, how much to say or how to characterize what had to be so bewildering uh, even to them as adults. As I grew older and as I had children of my own, I always marveled at how well my parents handled the situation because I don't really remember ever being frightened. Hmm. And um, 
I don't know what, in similar circumstances, I would have been so afraid. I would have been afraid to let my children out of my sight, that, or I would have said things that would most likely have scared them. So I really admired that. Hmm. So they were able to share at least a little information to try to help explain this, but not so much that it was truly frightening. Were you ever able to uh, reconnect with your friend Margaret? No, no. You were never I, able I, to play again. I um, was back in Germany several times, and I um, did go back to where we lived, but they were no longer there. Mm-hmm. How much, as, as this first started to become evident to you that something was amiss, something was afoot, uh, how much were you talking about this with your young Jewish friends, your classmates, for instance, in the Jewish school? I assume this started to become something that was uh, a source of fear for a lot of you. I I don't I don't remember per se talking about it with them. There were things happened that um, well when we in later years that was more closer to 1939 when school was let out. We would always have um, Hitler Youth. Um, in front of our school chanting um, dirty Jew, dirty Jew, or threatening us. And um, we, would, we, would, we were afraid of that, and the school then decided that they were going to not have a specific time of um, letting us all go, and parents came at mm. intervals and picked us up. Mm. So there wouldn't be this set dismissal time at such and such a time. Exactly. So that kind of ugly scene could could be avoided. I think more so than talking about the situation, we talked about it indirectly because there's a German word, Auswanderung. It means um, emigration. And that word, we heard that word all the time. That was the word that our parents talked about, our because everybody was looking for a way out. Mm. When it became clear that this was a frightening exactly. situation exactly. with no clear or quick resolution, this would be a solution in a yes. sense then for a, for a family fearing yeah, for and, the future. And anytime you had a group of Jewish friends or Jewish family together, that was the topic of conversation, immigration. Tell us a little bit about what I assume you experienced at some point in terms of this kind of encroachment into your daily lives and and the, the the barriers which began to be erected we we hear so much about that about how suddenly one day you couldn't swim in such a such a pool anymore that kind of thing what recollections do you have of that well my first recollection is i, l- I have to tell you i loved ice cream and there was a store in on main street and just there it's a big city it's about the size of was about the size of milwaukee i would guess but there was a store on the main street. It was called the Ice Cream Cone. I'm translating it now from the German. And about once a week, my mother would take me down there, and I would have an ice cream cone. And one day when we uh, got there, um, there was a sign on the um, door, and it said, Juden ohne Wunsch. Jews not wanted. Not welcome. Mm. And... That was the first store, and then more and more stores would put up these signs. And pretty soon we were really only able to shop at Jewish stores. 
we stayed. And we stayed home much more. We went out as little as possible because um, my, my, I guess my parents didn't feel safe. We didn't talk about it, but mm. I know we went out less and less. And uh, I couldn't go to the movies anymore and things like that. Mm. And we, av- we, avoided en- we avoided any kind of crowd. And um, there were always parades. There were always parades. And I always wanted to see the parade. Mm. But what children want to see parades. Sure, even, even if it was a Nazi parade. And, and my mother would always, you know, say, no, no, we can't, and would take me the other way. Wow. I mean, partly she, of course, would, would object to the parade itself, but probably also feared for your safety exactly. if you were seen there. Yeah. Wow. Uh, of course, one of the really dramatic, frightening events in, in, in this dark time was this night that's come to be known as Kristallnacht. Uh, and I know you have some very specific recollections of that. First of all, remind our listeners of, of when that occurred and why. That was the night of November 9th to November 10th. A German attaché in uh, France was murdered, and by, by, I have to check this, by a Jew, and this supposedly was the reason for Kristallnacht, but it's pretty much believed that this just didn't happen from one night to the other, that this had been planned. Mm. But this was the official story given by the German government, that because this terrible act supposedly was committed by a Jew against a German official, in France, that then this reprisal should occur. Exactly, but I have to check that out because mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure of the details. Mm-hmm. I can the way I remember Kristallnacht is that I um, I told you before that I went to a Jewish school, and the Jewish school was right next to the synagogue, and we didn't live very far from the Jewish school. Actually, we left our home and moved into my grandparents' apartment, which was adjacent to the offices of the Jewish newspaper, my parents' father's Mm. Jewish newspaper. And we got a call early in the morning, and um, it was a friend who said that my parents be sure not to send me to school because it would be too dangerous because the synagogue was burning. And I um, went to the window because I knew I could see the synagogue from our back bedroom window, and I could see the smoke coming from that area. Mm. That was my first, that was the very first thing. Then all day long, different people would call or or would stop in, and they would say that arrests were being made. And um, and that... um, in Stuttgart, all the Jewish stores, there were quite a few Jewish stores on Main Street, that all of their um, window panes were shattered. And that's how Kristallnacht got its name, because there were so many shards of glass on the street that in the sunlight they sparkled like mm. crystal. Mm. And I saw that myself. Mm. Because, and I'll tell you how I, later, a little about how I got to see that. But different people would come and they would say that um, Jewish men were being arrested and they were talking about what to do, 
Would it be better to hide or would it be better to stay put? And uh, that afternoon, uh, there was a the doorbell rang and um, I answered the door and um, we had a, like a little, I've never seen it in this country, but it was just like a little cubby hole that you spoke through. Oh. It reminded me of the kind of boxes we had for milk delivery here. Oh. And I went, I went and I asked who it was and there were um, three men standing there and they asked my grandfather and I, this is really very personal. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. It just came to mind. They asked for my grandfather, and I said my grandfather died, and would they like to speak to my father? And I always blamed myself. For years and years, I felt very, very guilty because I had the idea that if I had said that my grandfather had died and had not said, would you like to speak to my father, that they would have gone away. Ah. And I've never told that. To, I don't think. I don't think I've ever told that to anyone. It just hmm. popped in my mind. Wow. So, so you were in a sense suggesting, or offering that I your father could talk. Ex yeah, and, exactly. And uh, tell us what what that ultimately led to. So the, these three um, um, Gestapo came in and. Um, at that time, the way I recognized Gestapo was that they, were, they all wore trench coats. Hmm. Pretty much like the raincoats we wear today. And they were ex very polite. And they came in and they simply said, asked my father to identify himself, and said that he should come with them. But no, but no other, absolutely no other information to my mother or to me, and my father left, and that was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and um, that afternoon my mother was on the phone trying to find out, you know, we're asking other friends whether their husbands had been arrested and where they could possibly be, but there was no information available at all. and. Um, my mother immediately, I remember she immediately wrote a letter to my grandmother and my aunt and uncle in the United States. Um, and I was sitting with her and she um, thought and thought how to word it. She was afraid to tell them that he was arrested, mm. but she wanted them to know that um, what had happened and she found a way of wording it like that he was, it, you could have taken it that he was on vacation, that he was away from home. Mm. But I think, but uh, I think they, they said that they knew immediately what she meant. So she was trying to say it without saying it. Yeah, exactly. And um, this aunt and uncle are the ones who brought us to the United States. It wasn't easy to get into any foreign country at that time because um, the people who um, would sponsor you had to, um, first of all, they had to be off well enough financially so that they could take care of you. And they had to sign papers saying that you would never become um, wards of the state, 
that they would always take care of you. And my aunt and uncle had just left Germany um, see, a year and a half before that. And had they left, I mean, purposefully because of this changing situation there? I mean, they didn't just leave for the sake of leaving. No. They, they, they were, in, in a sense, fleeing this frightening situation. My, my aunt and uncle's story is a little bit different. My aunt, my uncle was not Jewish. And um, he was the publisher, he, he was the publisher editor of a relatively large German newspaper. And um, he was told uh, sometime in 1936, I think, that he had a choice to make, that he needed to either divorce my aunt, because they knew that she was Jewish, or that they would terminate his position. Mm. And at that time, they decided together that they would come to the United States. Where they could remain married. Where they could remain married, and, and my uncle he didn't want to have any part of Germany. Hmm. Let's return to your father. So he is taken away by these three men. Who's, who, it sounds like they never really say the word, you are arrested. But I don't remember it, right, at least. Yeah, so they, but they take him away. So what happened to your father at that point? Well, that night... That very night at 12 o'clock, it was at 12 o'clock, the doorbell rang, and my mother didn't know what to do, mm. but she decided to find out, you know, who was there, and we had, um, and we had, um, between, I don't remember for sure, you between 8 or 12 men appear, again with their trench coats mm. on. And, but always each one of them showing their identification. And I don't think that struck me as anything unusual at all then. But now it showed, when I think about it, it showed how all this was perpetrated in a way that was um, methodical mm. and correct. They didn't just storm in. Right. There was not a chaotic scene. No, they just very quietly came, showed their identification. And they said they came, they wanted to search the offices. I told you that that were adjoining our apartment. Right. And they went in to look through the papers, and I went with them. I just stood around and watched. And Really? My parents were always amazed because I remember details that they didn't remember. Hmm. And I think I and I think that I wasn't really fearful at that time. I was just observant. And um, I had a doll. I was carrying a doll, and one of the um, Gestapo men came over to me and asked me the name of my doll, and talked to me very nicely. Told me that he had a little girl too. Hmm. And then uh, a few of them left, and said they were going to pick up my father. Now, we thought maybe they were, that sounded good, they were going to bring him back home. Mm. But what they actually did is they brought him back because they had questions about the um, office. And about the newspaper, I about, assume. Uh, about the newspaper, and um, my father told me years later, he said he was never afraid at that moment because he said he knew that all of his papers, were, everything was in perfect order. And um, he sh he they asked a lot of questions about the subscribers because 
and um, the people who advertised in the paper, because actually, what I didn't tell you is that it was shortly before then that the decree came out that German Jewish newspapers couldn't be published anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, everything was at a standstill. And um, my, my father showed them around and answered their questions. I don't remember what the questions were. I wouldn't have understood them. And then they said, then one of the men said to my mother, they said, why don't you pack a little suitcase for him um, to take along? And, and they said, um, personal items and clothes. And my mother and I went, we packed this little suitcase. And, um, and, and then they, uh, just before they were taking my father away again, they closed the, they closed the two office doors that led to the apartment, and they applied a red seal of wax to the doors. Really? And, um, and they said that if that seal of wax gets broken, that that could mean my, that could mean my mother's arrest and death. Wow. They really, and, um, my mother was a very practical woman. I, I don't know how she did it. The minute they left, she said, we're going to move a big piece of furniture in front of that door. She said, that way no one will bump into it. Mm. And it will open, not be opened by mistake. Wow. I, th- I just <laughs> think that's unbelievable. Yeah, a smart woman. That she could do that. Yeah. And my mother was actually a very timid woman. Mm. And... Um, Then I realized that things were really serious at that when my father left, because in the Jewish religion, every on every before every holiday, because our holidays start the evening before the eve or the also the Sabbath, um, the father in an observant home blesses the children, and my father blessed me, called me over, and he put his hands on my head and he blessed me and. I knew it wasn't the Sabbath, and I knew it wasn't a Jewish holiday. So I knew that something mm. really serious. Just in that little gesture from him. That little gesture. Wow. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Edith Eisenberg. She is sharing some recollections of uh, her experience of growing up in Stuttgart, Germany, and the experience, which we will be talking about shortly, of her family leaving Stuttgart uh, to escape uh, the rising uh, uh, storm clouds of Nazism and uh, to make their way uh, here to the United States for, for a new life. So your father was, in effect, arrested. Where was he taken? He was taken to the city jail. And how long was he there? He was in the city jail. Um, he was taken he was, overnight. He went back to the city jail again. And the next day, he was taken to Dachau. Now, um, my mother and I went down to the police that morning, the next morning, we went to the police station. We went to all all the offices that she thought she might be able to get some information where he was taken. And at that time, we didn't know. And uh, the reason I told you that I saw what Kristallnacht looked like is because 
that morning on the way to the uh, police headquarters, we had to go downtown. And I saw all the stores that had been damaged and the shards of glass all over. Mm. And just before my father left, he asked my mother to go to Bensheim. That's the little town where my grandparents lived. And he said, please go and see that they're all right. And um, after we made the rounds of all these stations and, and, uh, and saw so many other Jewish women and children there, just in the same situation, in the probably. same situation, trying to get information, we went to the railroad station and uh, we, um, Bensheim, well, Stuttgart was a, is a major, major railroad center for all of Germany still today. And we were able to get a train to Bensheim. And we went to Bensheim and we arrived. It was already dark. And it was so strange because whenever I came to visit, my grandfather would be at the station picking me up and my mother and father. And he always had a big can bag of candy for me. Or he might have one of the dogs with him. And here we were alone, and it was dark, and that, and we walked to their house, and my, we, the whole house was dark, and my mother knocked and knocked, and no one, no one answered, and she was persistent. She kept on knocking, and then finally my grandmother came to the door. Mm. Probably wondering what this knock on the door was. I mean, for a Jewish family at that point in time, that had to be a frightening must sound. must have been very frightening, and we learned... And the minute she saw us, she started to cry, and she said that my grandfather had been taken away that morning, that he had been arrested. And then she told us that theirs was the only Jewish home from what she heard from, it was a small town, what she heard, that had not been vandalized, mm -hmm. that they had been saved from that. And the next morning, my mother and I went to see other relatives in that little town. And their houses were all in shambles. Mm. Everything, everything wrecked. Mm. And everybody just really, really frightened. Wow. And for you, I mean, you're eight years old at the time. And um, I think we just, we stayed long enough. There wasn't anything we could do for my grandmother. And but um, we found out with, within a few days that my grandfather had been taken to Buchenwald. And we went back to Stuttgart, and there we learned that my father was in Dachau. Mm -hmm. And we actually, and um, also learned that many of my friends' parents mm -hmm. told us, you know, fathers were in Dachau. And, um... Now, at that moment in time, I assume that the name Dachau did not mean to you what it means now. I mean... It, it meant nothing. It, it it was another jail. Mm -hmm. That's and that I that I've learned from my mother now. My father said that he said he had known of Dachau, and he said that when they were on the bus trip, you know, from the jail to Dachau, he said several of the men who were on the bus trip knew by the direction that the bus was going. The general direction and Dachau is near Munich that they, uh, they knew that where they were going to go. Hmm. And then I've, Dorothy was telling you about my father's book before. He wrote about those, his concentration camp experience, among other things. Hmm. 
so I learned a lot firsthand about what happened. And this was, this was 1938. This was before the decision had been made uh, to exterminate the Jews. How long was he in Dachau? Six weeks. Six weeks. I think one of the things that is hardest for us to grasp is how awful it would be to be caught in something so frightening where you knew so little. Uh, I mean, not just you as a child, but even your mother. Um, that, that that had to be so awful to, to not only have these terrible things happening, but to know so little about what exactly happened and, and why it happened and what's going to happen next. I mean, to live with that sort of acute sense of uncertainty had to be so difficult. I wonder if you, however, as a child, were at least to some extent um, insulated from that, if, if that was maybe worse for somebody like your mother. Oh, there's, there's no doubt about it. Because I remember meeting my friends and playing with them, and their fathers were gone too. And um, when I think of what my mother did, my mother immediately went to the American consulate, and by that time, there was an American consulate in Stuttgart. I mean, there were hundreds of Jewish women, out and men, and lined out outside trying to get help, trying to see if they had any chance of coming to the United States. And our, our, my, our papers had already been initiated. And um, after many days, my mother was able to get a statement from them, from the consulate, saying that most likely our um, papers would be ready to leave Germany for the United States in February. And based on that, my father was released after six weeks. Mm. Because at that point, Germany was as mostly interested in just having you leave. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and Germany wanted us to leave, and for most families, there was no place to go. You've touched on the fact that this whole word, German word for immigration, whatever that word is, was, I mean, that was a word you heard all the time. And y you, you talk about it being, in a sense, an exciting prospect. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, it, it would perhaps mean es escaping this thing, which seemed more and more frightening. How did you greet this possibility? I mean, were you excited at the possibility or, or saddened or both? I was looking forward to seeing my grandmother and my aunt and uncle in the United States. Um, I felt that this was a very, very important thing for us to leave. I also heard from my friends how worried their parents were because they had no place to go to. And then um, it was all made very, very clear when one of the teachers at the... Um, at my school. Now, we weren't going to school anymore at that time because uh, the synagogue was, as I told you, was lit and was, and it was almost completely destroyed and it was too dangerous to walk by there because of the rocks falling off the synagogue. It was a pretty massive building. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the teachers at our school had twin sons and he and his wife and the twin, he, they all committed suicide. And I did, my parents did tell me why they committed suicide because their um, 
papers have come to the United States were denied, and they didn't know where else they could go. Wow. And I, I think that shook all of us unbelievably. Wow. It made the, the, the possibility of leaving, of emigrating to the United States, literally a matter of life and death. So how long a waiting period are we talking about between this concerted effort your parents made to arrange this and the time when finally you were able to depart? Well, we're, we're ta we, I, don't, I don't know when my mother started. Um, I don't know when my mother started um, making, um, trying to make arrangements for us to come to the United States. And there were some difficulties because my aunt and uncle had recently emigrated and there Tomorrow. they w didn't have enough money to vouch for us, so they had to find other family members. And it was amazing, there were distant family members who were Americans who were willing to do that for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that was a, to take out a family and say, we'll take care of them, someone you've never known, mm -hmm. never written to before. So that's, they were busy in the United States trying to find people to bring us that. But I would say, when, when actually we left in March, and my father was arrested and discharged November in December. So it was only about three December, January, February, March. It was only really about three months. What do you remember about your preparations uh, to leave? And for instance packing up I mean did you were you trying to pack up nearly everything you owned or or was no. that not possible um, at the, well someplace along that I don't know wh when we had to um, we had to hand over all valuables like jewelry silverware gold that was collected we had to go to, to the government you mean to the government we went and drop these things off at the police station. And you could still take out, um, you could still make arrangements to have your th things shipped over to the United States. And My mother and father were making the arrangements. I remember them saying that if we can't bring anything out, we'll leave. He, they said, uh, we'll leave everything behind and just go with what we have on our backs. So leaving was the most important thing. Leaving was definitely the most important thing. So tell us uh, everything you remember about the actual departure. My father wanted us to leave very, very... I think before I... Sh what mm -hmm. I do really want to say, I think one of the hardest things, and I always hear when I talk about it, is that we, my grandparents didn't have the papers to come to the United States. And um, we had to leave them behind. The the grandparents, my father's in, uh, parents, Benz, in Bensheim. Right, and I think one of the hardest things was the goodbyes. Mm. So you went to Bensheim. They came to Stuttgart, and um, everybody put on everybody put on a smile because of me. Ah. And. Um, and of course, at that time, we—I don't—I don't think my parents knew about extermination camps. I mean, at that time, it, there was still a chance that they would get out. But um, I found everything that I 
I found things out for myself very often and, and things that they, my parents didn't even think influenced me in my thinking um, did. And one of the things that struck me at that time is that um, in the well, we were conservative, and in the conservative re Jewish religion, it's customary for children not to go to the cemetery while their parents are still alive. So when my mother went to the cemetery to visit the grave of her father, I never went along. Hmm. I knew where the cemetery was, but I had never seen it. And I heard my mother talking to my grandfather, that was my father's father, and she said, you know, I really think, I really would like Edith, they called me Edith, the diminutive, to see my father's grave. She, she said, and I don't know what to do about it. And I remember my grandfather telling her, I think under these circumstances, I think it would be perfectly all right. Such a thing would be allowed. It wasn't really allowed, it was more a custom rather than right. um, so it would be understood that this exactly. was, would be okay so my mother um, took me along to the cemetery and um, and then and then my grandparents died in a concentration camp and there was no cemetery to go to anymore mm. so and I've been back to the cemetery with my children. Really? Several times. Wow. So that was one that was one of the last things we did before we left from Germany, from Germany came came the goodbyes. Mm. My father and mother decided that someplace along the line that and this was very important because so many people wanted to leave Germany. It was just absolutely essential that your book a passage on a boat in time and my father said that he thought the safest thing to do would be to go to an Amer on an American line because if we went with a German ship we were still under the uh, the sa same as being on German ground ah. he said so we came to the United States with a ship called the President Roosevelt hmm. and um, because and this ship left left from Germany and then went to France, and there was an interval of a week between um, bet there was an interval of a week. It left Germany and then came to France. And my parents said, "Well, we were not even going to stay in Germany. We're going to go to France, mm. and we're going to and wait there. W wait there because that would be a lot safer." Yeah. So they wanted to get off of German soil and exactly. away from German authority as quickly as possible. Exactly, and um, I remember it was, and I remember, and I, I have the papers at home. Actually, I think I still have the letter. Um, it, you just couldn't go to France and stay there a week. It took a lot of um, paperwork to get permission from the French government to even stay there for a week, and again, you had to have a sponsor. Hmm. Again, hmm. in order to to make that that sort of intermediary trip. So so we went to France and um, 
Did you travel there by train? We, I yeah, we traveled there by train. And, um, my father said, please don't tell anybody that to me. You know, don't tell your friends we're leaving. We're going to do this quietly. Hmm. Uh, I don't want a lot of people. It would be safer. And to get to the railroad station, there's a whole group of people to see us off. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Which was very sweet. They brought candy for me and meant so well, and my father was really, really, really worried. Mm. That, that fuss was being made. Yeah, and, and the train we took was a, was a train that went from Stuttgart to Strasbourg, and the border crossing was Kiel. And um, um, we were on the train, and again, the, the Gestapo came through, and they checked passports. And we were all right. And then when we, then they came, oh, and my mother and father told me not to talk to anybody on the train. They didn't want, um, they didn't want anybody to know that we were leaving. We were just regular passengers on this train. Mm. So they didn't want you excitedly talking about, Looking at, yeah, yeah, we're on our way to France and then to America <laughs> and so on. So to keep that story quiet. Yeah. And when we got to the border of Kiel, um, they, uh, Gustavo again came around and checked our passports and they took us off the train. And um, they took us off the train and the train left without us. Oh. And um, my father, um, they let my mother, my, I didn't have a passport of my own, mine was with, combined with my mother, but they came and they took my father's passport and, um, and left. And my father told me later that that was the worst moment in his whole experience when they took his passport at that moment when we were so close yes. to, to leaving for the United States. You're right on the border between Germany right and France. Right on the border. It was only the Rhine separating us. Oh. And um, my father told my mother that if he doesn't get his passport back, that we should leave without him. On the next train that on comes along? On the next train, which was going to be, I think it was four hours. Because mm. I remember them saying four hours. Wow. And, um... The four longest hours of your life, right. I should think. But they brought the passport back, which was just like a miracle. They just came back and handed it to him. And my mother and father said, well, this, we've got to get out of here. And they asked someone who worked at the train station whether there was another way of getting to France without uh, waiting for the next train in this person said, well, why don't you walk over the bridge? Just like that. Why don't you walk over the bridge? Hmm. And so, um, and the bridge was, we could see it. You know, it was very, very close. It was right outside of the train station because the train passed over the bridge. And we went to, um, we walked up to the little guard house. It was like a little guard house. And said that we wanted to go to France and show them all our papers. And they strip-searched us and asked lots and lots of questions again, but said, okay. And so um, they opened up 
It's like a railroad crossing. They opened up the, um, like a and we started walking across the bridge. And my father said that when we got, and that I didn't quite understand at the time, we got to the middle of the bridge and he said, take one big step and you'll be in France. <laughs> and I don't think, th that significance I didn't realize until later. Hmm. So that's how we, that's how we left Germany. Wow. We, and we walked over and Norbert and I, I wanted to go back to Kiel. I wanted to see this bridge once, one more time. So we, on one of our trips to Germany, we went back to Kiel and it was a brand new bridge. Oh, <laughs> the old one was gone. The old one was gone, but we drove around and we drove around and we could still see the remnants of it. Hmm. Wow. So on the other side of the bridge, was that Strasbourg itself? That was Strasbourg. Wow. And you had to be there for about a week or so. We, we actually uh, took the train from Strasbourg to, um, to Paris where we had cousins. And we could only leave Germany with five marks each. So, uh, 15 marks. So, um, you know, the train, my parents had gotten the train tickets and everything prepaid. So we could go on the train. We stayed in Paris for a week, and then we took the train to La Havre to board the boat, and that started our voyage wow. to the United States. I suppose by this point, this is becoming maybe more of an exciting adventure once you have left Germany behind and you start to believe that this can really happen. But even in that French port city, do you feel like you still had this fear at the back of your mind oh, that someone is going to still step out of the shadows? And, ab and Absolutely, because at the, before being able to board the ship, we each had to have a physical examination again, that we were not contagious, that we did not have any contagious disease. Hmm. And everybody, you know, by then we were talking to other people who were leaving on that ship. Mostly everybody was German, Jewish, or at least Jewish from surrounding areas and every everybody was worried that they might not that they might find something wrong hmm. what can you tell us about the moment of actually boarding that ship and that ship leaving harbor do you have any vivid memories of that i Very, assume you do oh do i ever because i <laughs> i was so afraid of water and, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here i had to walk up like the skank flank, and, and I was really scared. And I stayed scared of that kind of a walk for many, many years. Hmm. And uh, I should tell you that when we took our first cruise, it was an Alaskan cruise, and I saw the ship and I um, saw the gang flag, I just had flashback after flashback after flashback to that minute. Hmm. But as far as the ship, my, everybody was terribly seasick. It was a really rough ride. We crossed the channel and went to Southampton and then to the United States. It was nine days. Hmm. And um, there was a lot of anticipation. I, was one, I met a little girl who um, also had her dog with her, and we used to meet on deck. And... Um, she asked me where I was going, and I said, New York. And I said, where are you going? And 
I don't remember what state, and at that time it didn't mean anything. We were going to mm. meet again, but I... Right. So she probably said Tennessee, Tennessee or something. Some, Tennessee or something. Some name that meant nothing to exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. Wow. But my grandmother and my aunt and my uncle were all waiting for us and some other relatives who were here. When your ship steamed into New right. York City's harbor. It, it, it went, it, we actually steamed into New Jersey. Oh, into New Jersey. Yeah, I think, I think it might have been Hoboken. Hmm. I'm not sure. But I, I was downstairs in the cabin when my father came running down and he and said to me, my mother, you've got to come, come, come quickly. Um, he said, and there was the Statue of Liberty. Hmm. So you can remember seeing Lady Liberty as you... I, can, I, I certainly can. Wow. Because everyone there was moved. Mm. There was just complete silence. Mm. I imagine that the Statue of Liberty looks different and has a whole different level of, of meaning when one has come through the experience that you and your family had and uh, made what really amounts to a very, very narrow escape. That was one of the first places that we went to visit. The Statue of Liberty, yeah. up close, you mean? Yes, and then, of course, we took all our children there. Mm. So tell us about the experience, then, of, of building this new life in the United States. Um, and, and for you now, nine years old, uh, that had to be exciting and bewildering and uh, probably a little bit sad, uh, all, all kinds of different emotions, I should think. Uh, were, were sort of uh, an interesting mix for you? I think um, the prevailing thing was the fact that we couldn't bring our grand my grandparents with us. And um, when I think of the Holocaust and everything that happened, um, and I think of it all the time, and the older I get, I think of it more but I think the saddest thing for me is watching my father tort literally torturing himself that he couldn't get his parents out. Mm. He tried everything after we got here. There wasn't much time before the war started. He couldn't find anybody to um, sponsor them in their number. There were numbers in Germany were too high. And I, I watched this man whom I loved so dearly just, um, mm. I don't think t I don't think torture is too strong a word. Mm. And that had to be so hard because, in a sense, that ruined so much of the sense of relief that he surely had, that exactly. he and your mother and you had had managed the escape. But yes. I mean, how tragic that it couldn't be a, a completely happy ending. And I think that. He just had this enormous sense of guilt that he uh, that he just carried with him till his dying day. Mm. So your family then made its home there in was it New York City? We went to New York City where my aunt and uncle and grandmother lived, and my father. Well, that was the end of the depression. It was very hard to find any kind of work, so my father became a door-to-door -door salesman selling. Um, Groceries. Um, Selling what? Groceries. Groceries. Yeah, and um, he and we apply and he applied for resettlement by um, a Jewish community, Hayas, who 
um, resettled Jewish families who came to the United States to different communities who had offered to take in these refugees and um, help them find jobs and help them become acclimated to United States life. Mm. And we were resettled to New Haven, Connecticut. Mm. What are your recollections as a young person in terms of making sense of this new country in which you, you found yourself? What were, what were the things that were maybe a, especially challenging or, or bewildering or exciting for you? Well, I think the big challenge was the language. I didn't know any English. And I was here only four days. In New York City at the time, there was a law that every child had to go to school within five days and and uh, my aunt and uncle said, well, that, you have to go to school. That's what it says. Mm. So they took me over to PS20. And that, and I would call, I think I learned English in an um, immersion setting. There, were no, there was no English as a second language or anything like that. I just went in there. Just had to do the best you could, I suppose. And it, but I'm amazed at how fast one can learn a language. Well, especially when you really don't have much of a choice. I really didn't. Have, I think the kid, I think hard for me was that the kids were really very cruel. They could not distinguish between someone. Well, I was only in. I went into second grade. Hmm. They couldn't distinguish between someone who was a refugee and someone because I was a German. I was German and and a bad German. Ah. So I was one of those bad Germans. And one day we had um, we had a speaker in the for assembly he was from the FBI and he talked about um, the need to the need to report suspicious activities and the need to always be vigilant. Because after all, um, and this was shortly before the war started, before we became involved in the war, and the kids were sure that I was a German spy, mm. which just makes, <laughs> I think is so funny in retrospect. Well, right, the absurdity of it about the last thing on earth you would have ever <laughs> done is anything to aid and abet the, the German government at that point in time. <laughs> wow. So, so at least some of your classmates saw you as a German. I mean, you, I mean, you, you came from Germany, and so at a point in time when most Americans were looking with grave suspicion at Germany, uh, you unfortunately bore at least a little of the brunt of that. Hmm. Were you able to uh, eventually make friends and oh, find yes. welcome? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I don't remember, I can't tell you how long it took. Mm -hmm. How well did you do in school once you had gotten the hang of this uh, unruly language called English? I did really well. In fact, I was always the one to win the spelling bees. Ah, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Very good. Um, what happens once you're done with your, your schooling? Well, no, ahead of that, as events transpire uh, in the Second World War, and of course we go to war with Germany and so on, you're still a relatively young person, but you become probably old enough to be more and more aware. Um, what's your recollection of well, following those events? I, I think that um, 
I began to realize very shortly how extremely fortunate I was that my parents and I could have come to the United States. And um, I became very patriotic. I wanted to do everything I could to help the war effort, like knitting for the Red Cross and um, saving uh, tinfoil, all those things. And, um, of course, my parents watched the news, watched, I should say, listened to the news mm. daily. I mean, the radio was always on for every uh, little, even every little bit of news. And we didn't know what had happened to my grandparents and other relatives. So we, we, my father was always searching for ways to maybe find out some of that information. Mm. Were you ever able to receive any sort of letters from them we after had, you had departed? We, after, well, between the t time we departed and the war s started, we received a letter every week Really, from my grandparents. A long letter from my grandfather and a shorter note from my grandmother. And these letters are, an, I always look at them as a, the Anne Frank diary of a... Um, aging couple. Huh. That, that, that is how I saw them. I, at that time, I read the letters. I was happy that, you know, they wrote. I was always mentioned in them. But then as I got older, and especially, and I started when I was in high school, when I read these letters, they broke my heart. Mm. And I can, I can barely, barely read them. I always wanted to translate them for my children into English but I still haven't been able to do it. They are the, it's a group of letters where every week you see a little bit more hope being lost, a little bit more despair. Hmm. As their situation as worsens. worsens. And as they begin to realize, and I, and I think in the last letters you can really tell that they knew what was ahead of them. Wow. And my father, um, Compiled, he saved all the letters. He wrote an introduction to these letters, and he gave them to the Leo Beck Institute. That's a archive for German Jewish history in New York City, and they have offices in London, and now they have an office in Germany, hmm. and um, I think they have the largest collection hmm. of um, German Jewish history, and he gave it to them hmm. in their memory. And you have these letters also. I have copies. The originals are at the Leo Beck Institute, and I have the copies. At one, at one point, did the letters simply stop arriving? I mean, is that when essentially you knew something had happened? Well, the, the letters stopped uh, arriving the minute that um, the United States entered the war. Ah. At what point did you ultimately learn about their their fate. It was that not until the war was over? We actually got two letters, short notifications through the American Red Cross from the concentration camp that they were in. They were in Theresienstadt, Terrasen. Yes. And that that was well the Germans had really designated that as a model camp. They when they they would show that camp off to visitors or when the American Red Cross, not the International Red Cross would come, they could in no time uh, beautify it and 
have it look like it was really a not so bad a place mm. to be. I have a, a compact disc recording of music that was composed by people at Theresienstadt and, uh, and things that were even presentations that would be made sometimes when Red Cross workers would, right. would come. Right. And it is so poignant to listen to that music and both to think about somebody writing music in the face yeah. of all that. Yeah. And also it's sad to think about some of that music in a sense being twisted into propaganda. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, do you know the book, I'll Never See Another Butterfly? Sure. That's from Therese and Stein. Mm. I mean, it was beautiful, poignant children's poems mm. that were written during that time. Yeah. So you did know something then of your, of your grandparents' yeah. fate. When was it that you learned ultimately of their death? There were only the letters that came. There were just two or three lines. And um, what we all noticed is my grandfather was extremely proud of his handwriting. He had a beautiful handwriting. And we saw, we, when the letters came, we saw that the deterioration in his handwriting. Mm. And then the last letter that came, it, it said, please, um, we are fine. Please do not worry about us, and we we hope you are fine. And that was it. Wow. And I have those letters at home. Hmm. Oh, do I have the letters? I have the copies because they're also in the Leobeck Institute. Hmm. Then after the war ended, we found out that they had died, the dates of their death and how they died. They died of starvation. We found that out because my father was able, the lists became available. Lists became available with, name, with names of people who had survived. Um, and my father went through that list and he found a couple of names, people he thought my grandparents might have gotten to know while they were in Theresienstadt because they were from the same vicinity or they were distant relatives, and he contacted them, and then that was the first, um, that was the first time um, that he knew for sure. And then after a while, um, we were able to find out from the German government, and that, and that, and then from the Czechoslovakian government, they because Trevisanstad is in Czechoslovakia, hmm. and they had very very accurate records, and I guess you. One thing you can say, they were methodical. Mm. The, rec the record showed that. It showed the date, the time of when they were deported, where they were deported from. Everyone assigned a number. Mm. And some of the So we were very fortunate because we were able, through these people who knew my grandparents at the concentration camp, to learn a little bit more about them and what they had been doing. And one of the things that really touched me, my grandfather during the First World War was a, uh, I was, well, there's a d German name, but he was, it's like a medic. Oh. It's like a medic because there was a base hospital in Bensheim where they lived. And he was there taking care of um, German soldiers who were returned to that hospital. 
And then when he was in Theresienstadt, the last thing he did until he died, he again was a medic, and he took care. Really? Yeah. There at the, at the camp? At the camp. And this one lady wrote that how kind he was mm. to all these people, dying people. I think it must be so interesting for you all to be looking back at these events and looking back at them, I should think, differently. I mean, to experience them at the time as still, you know, a young person, and then as your life proceeds, as you marry, as you have children, uh, to still, of course, be thinking about your grandparents and remembering uh, this heartache, but seeing it differently, uh, I mean, through the eyes of an adult. And, and of, of course, and then, and then also, uh, I understood what actually happened because I read so many books on the Holocaust mm. and went to lectures on the Holocaust that um, I, I learned to look at it from a different view. One, I had the emotional view. For a long, long time, and and nothing, nothing else, and nothing else, mm. and um, I think going back to Germany was, uh, but that was a hard decision. I never, I always thought I would never go back. I, but my husband really wanted to go back, and uh, I was so glad that I decided to go with him. I think it was, in many ways, healing. I don't believe I don't believe in the word closure. There is no closure for um, something like that. But I do. I feel I have many friends in Germany now. I love the young people. Hmm. I think I think they're wonderful. We've had them come and stay with us, and we really have some pretty close ties over there. Hmm. And were you able to reconnect with people that you had known, for instance, in Stuttgart? I, was, I wasn't able to reconnect with anybody in Stuttgart. And in Bensheim, I was able to reconnect with people who, um, whom I, let me think. I was able to reconnect with uh, people that knew me when mm. I was a little girl. Right, who remembered you, even yeah, if you probably didn't remember them. And um, friends of my grandparents. I, um got to know several of my father's gymnasium professors, which was very, my father, because of his writings, having been a writer and an editor was very well known. Mm. And um, people were, I guess people were interested in meeting his daughter. I, I could see why. <laughs> um, here in America, um, you, you, you go through school, you, I assume, graduate from, from, from high school, and what happens to you from there? I graduated from high school, and I went on to nursing school. After that, I met my husband, and um, we were married, and we moved to Saratoga Springs, New York, after he graduated, after he got his master's degree. We moved to Saratoga Springs, New York, where he taught at Skidmore, and he went on to get his Ph.D. from Spencer Polytechnic Institute. We had four children, and eventually 
when he, he went to do a postdoctoral in Madison, and we decided to come to, well, Kenosha, and my husband was the first um, chair of the science division there. At the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Yeah, right. Um, you mentioned the fact that for a long time you didn't talk much about this, that it was really, in a, it sounds like you were following your husband's lead in some respects in sharing about this. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, yeah uh, he, he was, he, originally he talked, he talked about it more than I did. I think Norbert, because he left Germany in 1936, he mm. didn't have the trauma the same way that I did. Right. But he was, but he was, but by talking to him and by talking to other people, I um, became more willing. I really felt I had to trust someone hmm. in order to speak to them about what happened. And uh, until, like I said, I saw the necessity of really being a witness hmm. to what happened. In as you raised your four children, um, how much would you talk about this with them? That's that's a real interesting question because there's such there's such a so many um, Holocaust survivors didn't talk to their children at all. Really? Um, some didn't even know they were Holocaust children of Holocaust survivors. Hmm. But I was used to talking. My father talked to me, and he wrote about the uh, Holocaust, and that's because he was a writer. And um, so. It was just natural for me to talk to my children about it. And they, from day one, knew uh, um, what had happened to their families in the Holocaust. I think that um, I, I don't think it affected their life. And it, we didn't frighten them with it. We just told them the facts. We told them how important our heritage was to us and that we hoped it would be important to them. And then we took, we took them on a trip to Germany and um, showed them Norbert's, where Norbert's family had come from, where I had come from. And they met some of these people I told you in Bensheim that um, they um, that had known my parents and had known me as a child, and we visited the cemeteries, and we tried to find, we tried to do a family tree. We tried to trace back our ancestry to as long as we can, mm. could. And our children were different, of course, were different ages when we took them, and they responded dif differently to it. To one of our children, it was just a great vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very excited about it. One of our other children did not think it was right for us to go back to Germany. Mm -hmm. And um, our another son became very, very interested in um, the Holocaust, and he became a history major, actually. Wow. And he's probably read every book on the Holocaust that's available. Hmm. But I think, in general, I think our family experience 
Our children knew how grateful we were to be in this country. They knew how Norbert and I were thankful every day of our lives, really, that we were spared. And I think that was transmitted to them because they have a they have a great interest in this country. They have historical interest in what's going on in the world. And um, they've even even they've even I they've even passed some of that on to my grandchildren. One day I was at Temple on Saturday morning, and um, one of the members brought me a newspaper clipping from I, from a Jewish newspaper. I didn't know what the Jewish paper was that said that Germany was offering um, citizenship to Jews who were deprived of their citizenship because of the Nazi regime. They could huh. apply for citizenship and be, get German citizenship. And he, this friend said, you should do this. I think this would be really good. Well, the, the thought of becoming hmm. a German citizen I, and Norbert had already passed away, so I couldn't talk to him about it. And I decided that I didn't want to, that I, there's no way that I could uh, take back German citizenship, be a dual citizen, and I couldn't, um, and that I couldn't, um, I couldn't possibly do that. I wouldn't want to. I couldn't possibly do that. But I did, th but I did think I should tell my children about it. I felt that I did have the obligation for them to know that they could become German citizens if they wanted to. And the German citizenship that was offered is um, uh, of the EU. I mean, they would automatically get a passport saying that they were citizens of the EU. Mm. So I told all my children about it. and The, the son who said that... Uh, when he was a little boy, that we shouldn't be going back to Germany, was horrified. He said, "You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that." I said, "No, I'm not planning to, but I do. I do think you kids do need to know about it." Well, my daughter decided that she thought it was a good idea, and that she was that she and would become a, she would take up the German government and become a citizen again, and automatically her three children would become German citizens. And she said she said she did it for many reasons. She said she did it for practical reasons. It would be she thinks that it would be very helpful to her children someday in their education, in their travels because they. And she said, and she also said, I think it's time that the circle gets closed. That's exactly how she put it. She said, but I can understand that you can do it, mother. So Lori and her three children with her husband, went to San Francisco and were sworn in as German citizens. Wow. And they carry German passports. Huh. Of course, they use they um, use their American passports. Hmm. But that was a very, was a very, very, uh, I mean, it, it forced me once more to look at the whole situation and to really put it all into perspective. When the story of your family reminds us that this experience is, is felt in different ways, and that there is not one single way to respond to all this, 
and uh, that's an important lesson for us all as well. I know that you have an important story that uh, you want to share about your father and some of these papers from his newspaper which fairly recently came to light. Tell us about that. Well, my father, my, after the war, my father was asked to um, buy, the little, uh, buy the newspaper in the town Bensheim to write um, some articles and to write some memoirs, and um, which he did. And then it was suggested that these be published in the form of a book. And he started writing. The, he started writing this book, but he passed away before it was finished. Hmm. So I decided that I really wanted to see this book published, but I, I there were so many hurdles. I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, couldn't get over the hurdles. One. One of the main ones was that the uh, newspaper where the original articles were published had the copyright, ah. and the newspaper was sold. So I was dealing with someone entirely different. I, I worked on it for quite a while and uh, worked with the uh, archivist in Bensheim and decided to put it on hold. Now, when you're 78 years old or younger, you shouldn't put so much on hold. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good idea. But I was—I never gave up completely. I never gave up completely, but I wasn't working on it actively. And then one day I got a letter from a school in Bensheim, and the name of the school is Geschwister Schulschule, Sibling Schulschule, and it's named in memory of um, the brother and sister activists who were college students in Germany, who together with another group, they call themselves the White Rose, early after Hitler came into power, started um, on college campuses and universities to pass out leaflets and to fight against Hitler's domain. And these two young people were killed by the Nazis. Mm. And, and after the war, many schools, many new schools were named after them, and these schools have special missions. And the mission, of course, is... Um, to make sure that something like this would never happen again, but and at the same time to tell the story. So I got a letter from this school. Oh, I knew that there was a school by that name in Bensheim because my father wrote about it. Mm. My father had written in his memoirs, the ones that were to be published, he said, and there, he just said generally, I, there's, I was so happy to learn that there's a Geschwister school in Bensheim, he said. And having a school like that uh, is so necessary and will do so much to, and I hope will do much to um, further relations, something like that. I don't know exactly anymore. So I get a letter from this school, and they tell me that their senior class every year does a, um, well, they, it's a year of study. It's a whole program in which they pick a topic and it's, it, ha it has to be in a topic that keeps with the mission of their school. And they decided to study the history of the Jews of Bensheim during the 19th century. 
and as, as the students were doing their research, and they came upon um, a copy of my father's unfinished book in the archives of that town. Oh. And they brought, and they brought, this is so amazing to me, they brought the, um, they brought it, they brought it to their professor, and he told me that they didn't ask, they demanded that this get published. Mm. And the reason is, that there was such, they said that they grew up never knew, knowing anything about the Holocaust, that that was a subject that was just not spoken about in their homes. And this, and they had read this, and this not only told them about the personal story of the Holocaust, but it also told them about the lives of the Jews in Bensheim. And someone I met in Bensheim once told me that if it hadn't been for your father's articles in our newspaper, we wouldn't even have known that there were Jews here. Mm. Was that eradicated? Wow. Isn't that something? Wow. So this publication then occurred? This publication occurred, right. And uh, it's a co combination of my father's memoirs and the research project of these students about the history of the Jews in that time. And the research project is unbelievable that a group of students can do that much research and put together a publication like that hmm. within one period, you know, with one year time. Wow. So when did that publication occur? That's about three years ago. Wow. That must have been tremendously thrilling for it, you. It was, it was so thrilling. I mean, I wanted to see it published, but I think what really was thrilling is that it was published by this school. Hmm. Because I know that, that for you, uh, you feel this special concern that uh, young people in this country and young people back in Germany uh, have a sense of awareness about the Holocaust. Although you were also sharing before we began our conversation that you also feel like the young people of Germany also need to move past any sense of direct responsibility or, or guilt. I mean, you want them in a sense to know about this, but to be able to, to live with this. Exactly, exactly. And uh, of the um, German students or, or children or friends whom I've met, not so much now, but they carried an immense amount of guilt hmm. about what had happened. And um, And I think that a school like the Gestristus First School, um, I mean, what a service to put all this into writing mm. and make it known, and what a learning experience for the students. Mm. But we certainly appreciate you uh, taking the time to share this story and all of these powerful details. Uh, is it hard to talk about these things, or does it feel sort of healthy to do it. It, it. It's it's really strange. When I, it's hard for me to do it, but I get so involved in telling the story that I completely forget hmm. that I, what I'm doing. I just, and it, I have, I just told you a fraction of, you know, what I could be telling. Hmm. The only thing that I did while I was, I just told things as they came to mind. Hmm. Um, well, we're glad that your memory remains so vivid after all these years <laughs> and, that, uh, and that you would share this with our listeners here on The Morning Show. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. 
Our guest for the morning show, Edith Eisenberg.